Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today on Truth and Movies, the toys are back in town in Toy Story 4. Bonnie made a friend in class. Toys keep swinging in the horror reboot Child's Play. Introducing your new best friend. And in Film Club, toys make a girl go crazy in Seed of Chucky. I don't have a problem with killing. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair, sitting across this week from Caitlin Quinlan. Hello, thank you for having me. And Dr. Anton Patel. Welcome back, Anton. Hello, thank you. <laughs> How are we doing? Caitlin, what have you been up to recently? Anything to report? Yeah, I'm all good, all good. We've got some exciting Bechdel Test Fest stuff coming up ah, right. to let the listeners know about. We're actually doing our first regional event, if anyone is in Brighton, on uh, Wednesday the 26th of June this month, next week. We are doing a preview screening of Support the Girls, which is an amazing new independent comedy um, starring Regina Hall. We're going to be down there having a nice time, doing some panels and screenings, and yeah, it'll be great. So come along. It's going to be at the Dukes of Comedia Picture House in Brighton. Oh, terrific. The new Andrew Bajowski. Yes, so. new Andrew Bajowski. It's a wonderful film. We, yeah. we love it. It's one of our favourites of the year. So yeah, and you can um, find more information at BechdelTestFest.com. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Anton, I'm so glad we were able to get you on this podcast because I hear you're jetting off almost immediately tomorrow. I'm leaving around, tomorrow afternoon. Around the world. Yep. So, yep. so I'm clearing my desk at the moment now. <laughs> but we had to bring you in to talk about some terrible, terrifying toys, uh, of course. Yep. But first, let's kick off with Toy Story 4. Almost 25 years since their first CGI animated adventure, Woody, Buzz and the gang are back in Toy Story 4. The toys have been handed down from their previous owner Andy to the hyper-imaginative little girl Bonnie, who is just starting kindergarten and comes back from her first day with a new friend. Oh, he did go to kindergarten. I knew it. No, no, You're no, trying guys, to get listen, Bonnie in the, trouble. No, of course not. You could have been confiscated. What does that mean? Taken away. <gasps> no! Or worse, you could have been lost. No, 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 guys, listen. Bonnie had a great day in class, and we're going on a road trip. Road trip? Vacation! <laughs> but then something really weird happened. Bonnie made a friend in class. What a Oh, kid. she's already okay, making she friends. friends. No, no, she literally made a new friend. Hey... It's okay. Come on out. That's it. Come on. There you go. Come on. Let's get you out of there. You got this. Good, good. Everyone, I want you to meet Forky. Yally, Bob, Look at that. Look how long his arms are. 
We should probably describe what Forky looks like for those who haven't seen the trailer. Caitlin, would you like to make a stab at that? Yeah, Forky is a delightfully cute um, spork, mm-hmm. the cross between a spoon and a fork, kind of stuck to two lollipop sticks, I guess, and with pipe cleaner arms, googly eyes, mm-hmm. classic kids reception, craft making session toy. Yeah, he's pretty adorable. And the very existence of Forky opens up whole new philosophical questions for the, really the lore does. of Toy Story, doesn't it? Toy Story has gone existential, full <laughs> existential crisis mode via Forky. It's mm-hmm. um, quite interesting, actually. I think the this um, this kind of manufactured toy by this this kid that's sort of having a bit of trouble herself, and he kind of yeah just wants to live in the trash and doesn't want to recognise himself as a as a being. Yeah, he never wanted to be, to be a toy. He didn't want to be brought into this world. He just wanted to be uh, yeah compostable material. Yeah. And Tom, were you responding to these existential themes here? This is something. There's always been elements of that in these Toy Story films, but this feels like new territory for them. It was, maybe. but I mean, you know, Forky's divided. In, he's conflicted in his desires because he regards himself as trash because that's where he came from and Mm -hmm. can't accept that he's a toy even though Bonnie who made him regards him as a toy and the difficulty that he presents for Woody is that his insistence that he's trash keeps reminding Woody of his own anxieties about his own essence because Uh Woody is always under threat you know throughout the franchise has been under threat for being uh, um, sort of thrown out or discarded or destroyed or ending up in the trash and that's where we he almost ended up in the the end of the last film Mm -hmm. and you can see that they're great foils for one another in a way because as Forky slowly kind of comes to embrace his status as Bonnie's favourite toy. Woody has to learn, finally, to completely let go of being a toy that's owned by anybody and to find out what it is that he's for. He repurposes himself, in, in essence, by um, determining what, what point he has if he's not being played with by children. So fascinating. I felt that Toy Story 3 rounded off that original trilogy so well, and I'm starting to repeat myself. I feel like a stuck record. Where Every week we're talking about a franchise that's been going on for 20 years. We've had Men in Black last week. The week before we had Dark Phoenix, the X-Men movie. This is you know, The Toy Story films have been going on for a long time. I am as old as the Toy Story franchise. And, and Anton and I just old (laughs) (laughs) yeah the first one came out the year I was born and so they've kind of I feel like they've always been just there in my life but yeah I'm not I wasn't entirely convinced that a Toy Story 4 or a fourth film was necessarily mm-hmm. needed but I think it does a good job of kind of suppressing that doubt and, and bringing everyone back into this kind of lovable Toy Story family So what is it that they bring back this, this sense of adventure Woody has to go and save a toy that's gone uh, gone awry it's sort of similar beats narratively to Toy Story 2 and 3 going into a um, in this case a, an antique shop where there are another colony of toys who have no owners very similar to the to the playgroup of the third film but what's different or what's fresh in this one? Is there enough to guarantee this film is essential? I think there's all the kind of, as you say, there's the classic Toy Story tropes. There's there's the gang back together. Mm-hmm. You've got all the characters you love, Mr. Potato Head and and Slinky and you know Ham and all the you know all these people, and they feel very familiar and very comforting to us. And yeah, each sort of Toy Story sequel has introduced a new sort of area with new toys that have to be brought into this group. And I think actually what this one does is, I think it knows that it has to follow a similar format, and mm-hmm. Woody's going to have to come and be the hero again and kind of have to reckon with his own role in this group. But really, like as Anton said before, it's kind of you really start to 
unpick the layers of what that's meant for Woody over the last, you know, three films as well. It feels very mature. I think this feels like a very mm. mature film with a lot of kind of themes that, you know, they're about growing up and they're about leaving things behind. And I think when it comes to, as we say, there are endless sequels now for all these franchises that have been around forever. People need to know how to end things. And this kind of comes to that sort of nice, mature close, I think. So there's there's that to it that I think really works. I feel there's almost a recognition of that in, in the narrative itself, where as the owners of the toys or the kids that play with the toys grow older, they have to be picked up by new generations mm. in the way that these films will never die and will have to be picked up by new generations. Anton, do you think that's part of the necessary cycle of rebirth here? I mean, in a sense, the original Toy Story, the very first film, had nostalgia built mm. into it because Woody is an, an old-fashioned kind of toy and mm. he's being displaced by a newer toy, by Buzz Lightyear. And this film is in a kind of meta way, is very focused on nostalgia, not just for old toys, but for the old films. Mm-hmm. It begins with a kind of sequence that's set, I think, between the first and second film, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a flashback yeah. to the happier days that Woody had. And now Woody finds himself marginalised. I mean, in, in many ways, you expect him to be the hero of the film. He is sort of the main character, but he's decented all the time. He is actually always having action taken by others around him rather than himself being the, the active or dynamic character. And he's having to learn that he isn't the centre of attention. In fact, in Bonnie's eyes, this piece of trash is much more valuable than he is. He's relegated to the closet. It also has a different kind of layer of nostalgia to it because in the antique store you have toys, some of which are quite a bit older than Woody is, and they come with a degree of menace. And in one sequence in the antique store, they put on an old gramophone and it plays Moonlight, which is very familiar from The Shining. Mm -hmm. And you are aware that this antique store is something like the Overlook Hotel in that these characters that inhabit the antique store, they're all trapped in their own past and in history and they don't really have any future to look forward to. And they're just haunting the place. In fact, it's quite weird to be talking about this film at the same time that we're talking about the Child's Play films. Because I think although several of the Toy Story films have kind of flirted with horror, I think this one really pushes that to a new Mm. level with, in particular, with two characters, two new characters. That's Bunny and Ducky. Bunny and Ducky (laughs) are carnival (laughs) prizes who've been stapled to the back of a wall and haven't been claimed. And they're also stapled to each other. Mm -hmm. So they're they're literally inseparable. And because they haven't been claimed as prizes and they've been hanging there for so long, they feel as rejected as Woody does, but in a different way, and are quite resentful of humans. And although there's always an an unspoken rule in the Toy Story universe that the toys talk and they move around and they can make objects move around as well, it's not just in someone's imagination. They can't ever make contact with humans. They can't make direct contact with humans. And these two new characters threaten constantly to do precisely (laughs) that in scenes that really do play as straight horror, mm-hmm. except that they're also framed as fantasy so that children will find it acceptable. Those, are, to me, were the funniest scenes in the film. Yeah, they were and, great. Um, it's also Key and Peele, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Providing yeah, the voices, yeah. so they have such a good rapport as well as, as voice actors. And they want to terrify and murder humans <laughs> in, their, in their fantasies. Yeah. That's your kind of toy, yeah. Anderson, right? But it's fascinating. I think they're going to have to update the Toy Story fan wiki, won't they, about what the law is about how toys can respond with humans, because there are other scenes as well where it feels like they're crossing the boundary to directly address addressing the humans to, to affect their world rather than slinking around in the background. And it is, these are boundaries between you know comedy and horror. And the mm-hmm. moment you push that boundary too far, 
you have Chucky. You know, that's, yeah. that's the end result. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in a way, there's a real continuum between the films. I think we're going to have a literal continuum between the two films because we're talking about <laughs> Child's Play, the reboot, very shortly. But let's put our scores on Toy Story 4 first. So in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect, Caitlin. I mean, as I said, I wasn't entirely convinced we needed a fourth um, Toy Story movie. But, you know, as soon as the trailer came out, I can't deny that I was very excited. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I think I, think I would probably still be around a four anticipation and then enjoyment it was it was always going to be a four it was just it's such a fun film um as i said it's very mature i think it ticks all the boxes that the kind of fans of you know the the original three are going to love there's so many new characters i think you know Keanu Reeves as Duke Kaboom is just incredible um, and you know there's the little Giggles McDimples police officer Polly Pocket which I personally loved I think it does a lot to keep the kind of cast fresh and the and the the ideas and the jokes fresh but yeah it still it still plays on all that all that nostalgia which is still really wonderful so yeah for me a four I've still been so happy like thinking back to it you know since so yeah I'm going to say fours across the board for me for this one I thought it was really good yeah Anton I know you hate putting scores on films but... <laughs> um, I must say I didn't feel that there needed to be a fourth film after the third so um, when I was thinking about what it might be I didn't really care and I was mm-hmm. maybe a three but I, I really enjoyed it the jokes come thick and fast it's mm-hmm. a very very funny film and do stay around till the very end of the credits because there's a fantastic uh. gag at the end it's set up so carefully by the film and it just pays off in the in the best way like it left me in a really good mood so I'd say four and four for, for um, okay. enjoyment and in retrospect it's also very layered I mean mm-hmm. there, are, there are lots of themes in it, it um, it's quite a serious film in many ways yeah I'd go four four maybe three for this because yes very well written so polished it's amazing seeing returning to these characters and seeing how the standards of animation develop Mm, even within this and Toy Story 3 it's a beautiful film and it does tease some new areas but for me it did feel like the first time this was just another Toy Story film and we know I know we're going to get these forever now so maybe it's starting Mm. to dim and lose some of that specialness for me one Mm. thing that's worth adding I remember when the first one came out a friend I had who worked in special effects said that the, the hardest bit of that film to make was something that actually didn't include toys at all it was just a shot of a car windscreen mm. with raindrops going down the, the window and being wiped by a windscreen wiper because the algorithm for that at the time mm. with CGI as it was was really, really difficult to program. And this film opens in a rainstorm. And it's stunning. And it totally oh shows it off. Yeah. And it's incredible. it's incredible. Like, it's totally photoreal. And you, yeah. you, you buy it completely. And there are toys woven in and out of it. And it's just yeah. really, really top of the range. Effect. I will also just add that one thing that I found quite interesting, there's this whole kind of evolution of the Bo Peep character. And I think oh, yes, something, that, something that films are seem to be doing at the minute especially in franchises is trying to like have this kind of feminist angle on things and really reclaim these stories and you know reinvent the female characters for you know what they've been kind of reduced to in the past and give them kind of a new new landscape to explore but it all feels very performative at times and it's this very kind of like commercial feminism that isn't necessarily achieving anything it's just very performative but I do think that how this film treats Bo Peep is very natural very easy there's nothing kind of look at what we're doing we're making a feminist character here it's not really made a big deal out of she's a, like a very good character there's so much to her story now it all makes perfect sense it's very natural there's nothing kind of shoved in your face about mm-hmm. about that which I just think is a, a good thing for the for this film and for, for the younger generations that are going to see it fantastic mm. so that was Toy Story 4 sounds like a strong recommendation from the table this week up next we're going to talk about Child's Play This reboot of the long-running killer toy horror franchise recasts Chucky, the creepy redhead doll, as a movie monster for the 21st century. The supernatural trappings of the original series are here replaced with an almost Black Mirror-esque vibe as a rogue buddy doll AI companion subverts its subservient programming and goes on a killing spree. 
You are my buddy until the end. More than a buddy, you're my best friend. I love you more than you will ever know. I will never let you go. I am your buddy until the end. More than a buddy, I'm your best friend. The dulcet tones of Mark Hamill there, taking over from Brad DeReef as the voice of Chucky. So Anton, the Child's Play franchise has been going on for 30 years plus now. Uh, this is the proper reboot. The original creator, uh, Don Mancini, is not involved in this one. Not involved, and I believe not having anything, to, doesn't mm. want to have anything to do with it, and is not entirely happy that it was made. I mean, right. he lost the rights to the first mm. film, and that, that is why this has got made, and he really didn't want to have anything to do with it. It also doesn't have Brad Dourif, who's been the enduring voice mm. of Chucky throughout the franchise since yeah. 1988. So a completely fresh start, then? It is a fresh start, mm-hmm. and it tells you it's a fresh start from the beginning. It's a very different film. I mean, I must say, I'm going to say this from the outset, I think it's a much better film than the original film. Okay. Um, I really like the Chucky series, but I'm not the biggest fan of the first film. And, well, the film sets its stall in a kind of diptych of opening scenes that really tell you everything you need to know about how different this is going to be. You get a corporate advertisement for this new doll that's on the line, this AI doll that is a bit like Alexa. It's going to run all the appliances in your house <laughs> as well as being an intelligent doll that learns from its owner and will kind of will evolve over time and become more sophisticated over time and grow with it with the child mm-hmm. who owns it. And it's a sort of slick corporate ad. It's presented by the CEO of the, mm-hmm. of the corporation that's building these toys and we note that it's called Buddy not called Good Guy, which mm-hmm. the original films were called Good Guy Dolls, and that it's electronic, which mm-hmm. is something completely new. And then we cut to the factory in Vietnam where these dolls are being manufactured, and it's a rather less slick image that we receive. This is the, the means of production, and the means of production are kind of grim, mm-hmm. and the workers are mistreated, and one disgruntled worker is fired, and in an act of angry vengeance, he alters the chip of the doll that he's working on removes its violence inhibitors, as though a doll would have violence (laughs) inhibitors, um, and removes various other safeguards so that it's going to have much freer choice, a much freer will than Mm -hmm. the other dolls would normally have. And then he kills himself. So in a sense, what these scenes do is they tell us that Chucky is no longer a doll that has been inhabited by the transmigrated soul of a serial killer. <laughs> this is actually a robot that is going to go wrong, that is going to mm-hmm. a, a malfunction in a, in a way that is perilous to those around it. It also tells us that the film is going to have a much stronger focus on class, I think, than the original film had, and that really does continue throughout because all the characters in it live sort of on the margins. Um, they're not wealthy characters. They're struggling to get by, and they're living in an environment which we're repeatedly told is a bad environment mm-hmm. or a, a dangerous environment. The other thing I really like about this opening scene is that when the original came out, that was around the time when quite a lot of exploitation films would have a Vietnam flashback to give you a kind of origin story of why a character in the present has trauma, uh, you know, where that trauma comes from, and it's from experiences in the Indo-Chinese conflict, right? Whereas here we have a Vietnam flashback, but it's one that's completely updated to our own times when Vietnam really is a faint memory, and Vietnam is now a sweatshop. Mm. Um, I mean, really, this is a story of revenge. It's a story of very gradual revenge because the disgruntled worker rises up through the doll that he's misprogrammed and gets this very, very delayed revenge upon the consumers. Um, (laughs) And it's a very good film because it plays itself, in a sense, as a straight horror film, which is something like what the first three Child's Play films did. 
And at the point when Bride of Chucky was made and the titles incorporated the name Chucky into the title and stopped being called Child's Play, they turned into kind of postmodern comedies. And this does a bit of both because it knows that we know the Child's Play films, so it's able to be quite reflexive and to make jokes on, upon our expectations. It does go into all kinds of different directions. I think the characters are really are really well written. The child actors are amazing, actually, yeah. very impressive performances. Mm-hmm. And Chucky is a strangely... I mean, well, I, I suggested that um, he's programmed to have free will. I think this is a really important idea. We know that Chucky is evil because mm-hmm. of the other films, but I think in this it's not so straightforward that he is evil. Mm-hmm. Um, he learns from his environment, and he exaggerates the cues that he picks up. But basically, Chucky is repeating and echoing the violence that he experiences in the world around him and amplifying it. And really, he just loves his owner, Andy, Mm. and wants to be with him. And his coming of age and Andy's coming of age complement one another. One of the the kind of in-jokes in the film, and I think it's a really sophisticated joke, is that the first three Child's Play films, actually also Bride of Chucky, but particularly the first three, when they came out, were notorious in the tabloids. There were all kinds of suggestions that they had inspired actual Mm -hmm. crimes, particularly crimes performed by juveniles. Yeah. And... There's not really anything to that. In fact, if you look at the Charles Play films and compare them with other horror films coming out at the time, they're really tame horror films. They're not nasty horror films at all. They were 15 certificate films. However, in this film, Chucky himself learns behaviours by watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, mm-hmm. which is a film from the 80s that children really shouldn't <laughs> be watching, but all the kids in this film are watching. Mm-hmm. So we have this weird feedback loop where you actually have Chucky himself learning behaviours from a horror film rather than children learning behaviours from a horror film, and that's what inspires his conduct to th- a degree. I think that's such a playful scene. It also feeds into the way that this is um, its from the producers of It, of course, and it's very much dials in with this recent trend in horror. We spoke about this with Pet Cemetery recently where it's the 80s are back again. And all of these child characters seem like they've been costume designed to re- <laughs> to almost recall characters from 80s movies, particularly the main character, Andy, who is almost dressed like Elliot from E.T. and even mm. looks a little bit like that character. He has the red hoodie on, the mm. hood up all the time, uh, skulking around in his cast of friends might as well be from the Goonies. Yeah, I think it plays with that quite nicely though because as you mentioned, Michael, in your intro, there is this sense of the kind of black mirror, you know, threat and there's a lot of this modernity seeping in that's taking over, you know, the world. The fact that you can get a driverless car, which I think is an interesting um, mm-hmm. plug that that's, you know, that's such a, a seeming threat at the minute that, that these driverless cars are going to take over and, and crash everywhere and go wrong and malfunction. There is that threat of how is technology going to turn on us in the same way that we said in Toy Story, like there's, the, there's that line about, you know, what's this toy going to do? Is this toy going to turn on me? One of the jokes I thought was really clever was um, there's a moment where Andy's trying to, he's setting up the the buddy toy. It says, oh, what's my name? And he tries to call it Han Solo, which again is like a little bit of a nod back to those older movies. He tries to call it Han Solo and he he kind of, the doll malfunctions and says, oh, you're calling me Chucky. And and it's, it's, you know, it's an obvious, I guess an obvious pun and, you know, you had to get the name in there. But there is that kind of like, this is how technology, how we interact with technology now and how it can fail us, but how it can, you know, always be there for us as well. I just thought that was like a nice way of tying in this like modern kind of threat um, with all those, you know, nostalgic, you know, callbacks to other and, things. And that joke was even funnier because Chucky is now voiced by Mark. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh. It does feel like that is almost 
There's an unwritten rule now that if you have an actor from one of these massive franchises, yeah. we saw it with Men in Black International, where there had to be a Thor joke with Chris Hemsworth. Mm. Not to spoil anything, but The Dead Don't Die, the Jim Jarmusch movie, plays on the fact that Adam Driver is in Star Wars uh, <laughs> in, in that film and makes a joke. It, it's it's starting to wear a little thin now, but I think there that, was the whole that, Spider-Man bit in um, Under the Silver Lake as well. That crazy little yeah little nod. We can't escape uh, the I massive know, franchises, yeah. even in the in, even in the side franchises. Yeah. Here. So, Anton, I find it so fascinating that you. Uh, mentioned class here because I almost thought that setting this within a world it's it's in a sort of high rise block well not high rise low rise block of, of flats and they were very much sort of lower middle class working class people Aubrey Plaza works in a shop that sells the toys and that's how she gets it it's a, a refurbished return and it's quite clear that she's selling toys she can't afford yeah exactly mm. yeah. it almost feels a, a little bit like a writer's workaround if they've set up in the, the opening scene that this this robot can control your entire house to then set it in the sort of household that doesn't have all of those gadgets. That, so save that for the mm. sequel where the toy might turn up <laughs> in a more affluent household and then can run riot, maybe. But it does take over everything. And I mean, the mm. final scene, I'm going to be very careful what I say, mm. but the final scene takes place not in the house, but in, mm-hmm. in a shopping mall and is alluding to Chopping Mall, the 80s horror <laughs> film. And there it does take over mm-hmm. everything. And it takes over the TV in the house. But it's not like it's yeah. the full... Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not like you're heating. And you're, yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> and they, they save it. They meter it out, don't they, across the film. Is yeah. this a satisfying horror movie? So, it's, so we've, we've talked very much about these deeper themes and inferences and implications mm. here. When I saw it the other night, it seemed to be going down well as one of those yeah. laugh-out-loud horror movies. Lots of gory deaths and kills. If you care about those things, would you agree? This is a real crowd pleaser. I yeah. think the the audience I, I was sat in as well. It was kind of you know riotous laughter and and you know some of these deaths. I think they made me think of the Final Destination movies. That was the kind of the kind of yeah. refer, those reference points I was drawing on. And I think when it comes to these kinds of slasher films, if you don't have deaths like that, then you might as well just not do it because they're the crux of you know the enjoyment of these films. I think and and there there's some pretty gruesome deaths in this that mm. I was quite impressed by I thought like this is good like this is what I want to see it kind of made me think of those screenings at festivals when you get like the crazy audiences in and they show them at midnight and like this is a perfect movie for that um, just everyone screaming at you know <laughs> real, real gore it's definitely a crowd pleaser and it's a bit chaotic but I think it you know it works really well and I, I'd never seen a Chucky movie before like any um, part of this franchise and it kind of strikes me that it's like the the perfect setup for a slasher movie. These crazy dolls that mm. are so bonkers and so out there, but really that's what makes it work so well. It's that this is so kind of ridiculous and scary at the same time, and these ideas just work together really, really well mm. to to make something that's that's fun, yeah. <laughs> really fun. Yeah, well, we have more crazy dolls coming up very shortly in film club, of course. But first, Anton, what scores would you give this reboot of Child's Play? Well, I had very low expectations, mm-hmm. so I would say um two mm-hmm. for anticipation and. Again, Again, four, four for oh, enjoyment and mm-hmm. in retrospect, because I think it's a very fun film to sit through. Mm. It's just endlessly entertaining, but it does have a subtext. It mm-hmm. has these subtexts mm-hmm. of class. It has interesting ideas of nurture versus nature. It's quite understated, but it's definitely there. So it gives you something to think about if you want to do afterwards, mm-hmm. which is you know more than a lot of other horror films do. So, <laughs> Caitlin, I would actually agree entirely. I think my expectations were very low. Um, as I said, I've never seen a Chucky movie, and there's probably a reason for that. Dolls are terrifying, <laughs> so I wasn't kind of going into it with uh, with high hopes. But I had a great time. It's a real kind of fun, chaotic movie, perfect slasher fodder. And yeah, I've, I'm still thinking about it now, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, very much still kind of yeah on board 
board with the with the Chucky train. Yeah. yeah, I'd written down for my scores two, three, three. I, I had very low expectations. I did enjoy it, but there was something that wasn't mm. connecting with me. But Anton, as always, I love talking about horror films with you. <laughs> you always unpick these so well, and I might go back and see what I missed. <laughs> but that's Child's Play 2019. We're going to go back to a former Child's Play next with Seed of Chucky. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Written and directed by Charles Play creator Don Mancini, this fifth installment in the series went meta. Chucky and his killer doll Squeeze Tiffany are now in Hollywood, appearing in a slasher film alongside actress Jennifer Tilly, who both stars here as herself and provides the voice of Tiffany. But things start to go awry and the blood starts to spurt once Chucky and Tiffany's diabolical doll offspring Glenn, or Glenda, comes looking for them, asking some tough questions. Why do you kill people? Excuse me? Why do you kill? Well, um, it's a hobby, really. It helps us relax. Am I going to be a killer? Of course, it's been a family tradition for generations. But violence is bad, isn't it? They said so on TV. Not violence. Violins. Violins are bad. That screechy music is going to ruin the goddamn country. Chucky, Glinda's right. It's time we owned up to it. We have a problem with killing. I don't have a problem with killing. I like a little killing now and then. What's wrong with that? Killing is an addiction like any other drug. But we're parents now. We have to set a good example. What a great week for voice actors, right? I absolutely love Brad Dorif and Jennifer Tilly's voices, especially as those characters. So, Anton, you mentioned that these latter Chucky films, once the names started appearing in the titles, start going postmodern, and this must be the most postmodern of the lot, right? It is, because you have scenes in Hollywood, you have the doll characters meeting the actors who do their voices and then trying to take over their human bodies. This is where it all goes very meta-Hollywood. Weirdly, the central themes of this film are remarkably similar to Toy Story 4 in that this is about 
existential crises mm-hmm. and characters trying to work out who they are. And I mean, one of the things that is really funny about it is that it presents this kind of what in any other film would be a really wholesome message about being yourself, <laughs> except that what these characters want to be is serial killing dolls. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, you have these these weird polarities where characters have to decide where they stand. And you could tell even from that clip that Tiffany is unsure whether she wants to continue killing now that she's a mother. And Chucky definitely does want to keep killing, but really so does Tiffany. Um, and um, so they're, they're quite conflicted. You also have this polarity between being a doll or being a human. Tiffany and Chucky have this goal that they're going to take over two human bodies and they're going to implant their son or daughter into a third body. But Chucky gradually realises that he's quite happy remaining a doll and doesn't like humans. And there's even a question of origins because Glenn or Glenda in the beginning of the film is in England and has a kind of Dickensian English street urchin <laughs> accent, if I can put it that way. Yes, yes. And, um, but discovers that he's made in Japan. He's got a sign on his wrist that mm. says made in Japan. So in other parts of the film, he, he speaks in Japanese <laughs> because he's trying to reclaim his roots. But then he discovers that his, his actual mother and father are from Jersey. And so it's all very confusing <laughs> for him. And in fact, he in, um, instantiates the other real conflict in the film, which is one of gender. It's one between mm. male and female. He's called Glenn and Glenda, you know, obviously after the, the famous Z grade film. He, I keep saying he, but I shouldn't really say he. It's he or she. Unlike the parents, has no defined anatomy. And the parents really do have anatomy, and that's quite important. I mean, it's called Seed of Chucky. It literally opens with semen. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, with, a, with, a, with an image of semen. <laughs> and um, it also features Chucky masturbating to a Fangoria magazine, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> but, um, so Glenn or Glenda can't decide what her or his gender is and seems to be sort of intersex. And that plays out in a very, very funny way by the end of the film. And because there's this allusion to an Ed Wood, Ed Wood film in his in his name and be, you know his or her name sorry I shouldn't say that and because also John Waters has a cameo in mm. the film it's setting out its its stall as a kind of as, this is trashy exploitation mm. it knows exactly what it is it's mm. not trying to be anything else and it's just full of really funny gags mm. and um, <laughs> trashy allusions to Psycho and the the Shining mm. and Halloween mm. um, mm. Uh, Psycho and Halloween all appear in the opening sequence, which then turns out as a dream sequence, but it's a dream sequence that Glenn or Glenda is having that seems to be an inherited set of urges to kill that Glenn or Glenda doesn't understand, which, of course, come from the paternal and maternal line. Mm -hmm. It should be said that Don Mancini has been behind all of the Chucky films. And although we we have this reboot of Child Play Now, the Chucky films that Don Mancini is in charge of have not come to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, he intends to make more features that will mm-hmm. continue the story. And there's also a TV series coming out next year, yeah. I believe. So Don Mancini hasn't disappeared or withdrawn. It's just the reboot is a completely new direction mm-hmm. for Chucky and a very different kind of Chucky. Yeah. Anyway, this was Don Mancini's directorial debut. He'd written all of them, but this was or, or co-written all of them. But this is the first where he actually stepped into the director's chair, and he just goes crazy. Even in that opening sequence, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's the first person sequence, which refers yeah. to Halloween, of course. But some of the tricks, the camera trickery they use there is is really fantastic. Um, Caitlin, so that's quite a, a you know pulling a part of the film there. Coming as a as a relative newbie to the Charles <laughs> Play franchise, how do you approach a film like this? I mean, this is definitely not what I was expecting. I've never seen any of the Domancini Chucky films um, now I've seen this one and it's a very strange one to start with but I, in a way I'm kind of glad that I did because to me as I said before like the whole kind of crazed doll murderous dolls that seems to me the perfect kind of platform for this kind of film and because they're so ridiculous and because there's still that creepiness and that fear but 
it's also just such a laugh as well. And I think in kind of maybe the more serious or the darker ones, you kind of lose something there because it's maybe trying to take itself a bit too seriously when really this is kind of, you know, you just need to let them run wild and and kind of do all these crazy things. Um, So it was definitely a bit of a surprise that this film kind of followed the routes that it did. But there's so much to it and in the the whole Glenn Glenda character it's quite progressive for its time and it's not kind of doing trying to say anything derogatory or, or negative about this character it really is just about they're trying to figure out who they are what they want to be who they want to be if they want to be murderers but it, but it's you know it's there's a fundamental kind of story of identity throughout mm-hmm. and yeah in the same way that Toy Story 4 is kind of you know reckoning with what your place in the world is and how you interact with the humans around you it's very layered I think mm-hmm. there is a lot to it but it just it definitely was a bit of a surprise. The fact that it operates in that trash exploitation mm. and camp sort of tradition means that it can be both equally exploitative but also progressive at the same yeah, time. And it's, it's really like fascinating. The, John, the whole John Waters cameo is, is perfect. It kind mm-hmm. of, yeah, that sums it up for me, I think. It does all the, the kind of crazy things that, you know, Female Trouble or, or Pink Flamingos or whatever, yeah. you know, did. And, and they're so chaotic and messy, but wonderful, wonderful films. This is maybe slightly... Um, slightly wilder but yeah it's still there's still a lot to it I think to, to pick up even though there are some very dated elements to it especially the casting of one of Esclub 7 oh my uh, god that... personal assistant <laughs> which is bizarre and, um, maybe Esclub 7 passed you by Anton I didn't even know yeah. that <laughs> as soon as I saw her I was like wow this, this film has already taken some turns but that was that was really interesting but it does both of its main sort of um, hot button topical threads are very relevant now almost a decade mm. before they were in the public yeah. consciousness so you have not only the, the trans issue which we can't really talk very authoritatively mm-hmm. about around this table, but there is a really great feature on LittleWhiteLies.com yes, yeah, yeah. by Sam Morrow on that topic about how this film spoke to them mm-hmm. as a younger age, specifically for that representation of a coming out scene, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other bit is the casting couch. It tackles on this times up sort of messaging around Jenna Tilly having to try and woo and sleep with Mr. Redman, yeah. uh, the director, <laughs> in order to get a role in his movie instead of Julia Roberts, who yeah. she's trying to get past. And, and I, I think that its handling of that that is very much dated to the time mm. uh, I don't think it, would, it really reveals much that is of, of worth now but it's fascinating that it can go there in the way that many films perhaps didn't at the time but there is also that kind of point about you know she's almost like an ageing actress and she's losing out to other women and there's that, that level of competition that I still think is relevant today mm-hmm. in kind of how actresses are fighting one another for these roles and, and you know it's obviously the storyline kind of doesn't do many favours but there is that, that conflict of you know she's being pushed out of this industry and she's like trying to claw her way back in just as much as these Chucky dolls are trying to claw their way you know to Mm. this humanity yeah and it's one of those um, almost contradictions where a film in which Jennifer Tilly is sending up how much of a dead end her career is going in is also a fantastic (laughs) uh, showcase for her talents and I I love her so much in Bound in particular which gets mentioned a lot in this film Mm. and unfortunately undercut a little bit as just the film with the lesbians but that's another film that over the years has taken on a whole new meaning Anton the Chucky franchise has become almost the last hurrah of Jennifer Tilly in a way. Uh, what sort of work is she doing here? Whenever these films get released, she'll go to the festivals where mm-hmm. they show. They now do tend to go straight to video. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think this was the last Chucky film right. that was released yeah. in theatres other than the new Child's mm-hmm. Play. But she'll follow the films around to festivals. She was at Fright Fest when the last one showed. And I don't think she's doing much else. It's certainly the role for which she's most famous. And she's completely made it her own. It's impossible to imagine anyone else playing mm-hmm. in that role. And it'd be very interesting to see 
how they'll manage that in mm-hmm. the in the new franchise if they can find a way of bringing her in, which I can't really imagine. It feels like um, they're trying to just go in their own direction, right, with yeah. this new franchise. But then I wonder if, if Don Mancini can pull off this TV series he's talking about. It could be quite... You know, ba- have, Battle of the Chuckies. Exactly. <laughs> then you can have the Chucky versus Chucky, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of crossover in the future. In this film, the director who she is wooing mm-hmm. uh, is played by Redman, playing himself. And I believe that originally they were trying to get Quentin Tarantino for the role, which, I mean, I've never really liked Quentin Tarantino as an actor, but I can see that it would have been a really smart choice because it would completely fit in with the, the kind of meta levels mm-hmm, of the film mm-hmm. because this also is a, is a real magpie film. It's picking little samples from this, that and the other horror film and I think also Quentin Tarantino is you know quite at home with postmodernism and so it just would have been such a funny thing to have him in this role. That Red Man's okay. And that would make it even more sort of topical now going yeah, back and having yeah. Yeah, Tarantino in, in a role like that, not that he specifically is yeah. culpable of much of that but is sort of part of that whole conversation, isn't he? Mm. It's a fascinating one. Anton, would you say this is... You said this is one of the better films in the franchise, perhaps. But, I think so, yeah. Um, would this be the right starting point? Well, Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, the, problem, the problem is, the first film, I just think, is bland. And the story behind it has become so much a part of the culture that you don't really need to see it to see the other films. You're going to pick up the story. It's not It's not a very complicated premise. I mean, I know you're coming in at the deep end, but mm. it was very easy to follow. I would, oh, I would, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Not, so, um, so I, yeah, I wouldn't start with the earlier films. I would start at Bride of Chucky and mm-hmm. then this one. <laughs> and, um, well, that's, a, that's a, a, a good quadruple bill. Maybe go on and see Curse and Cult of Chucky after this. Yeah. Uh, go and do that this weekend, perhaps. <laughs> so that was Seed of Chucky. Next week, oh gosh, so we have Yesterday... Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle doing a Beatles movie in which the Beatles don't exist. In Fabric, the new film from Peter Strickland, director of Barbarian Sound Studio and Duke of Burgundy. You're a fan, Anton, I believe. Oh, that's a that film. <laughs> and for Film Club, because it's a week of the Beatles, we're going to go back to 1964 for their movie A Hard Day's Night. If you want to let us know what you think about those films or any of the films we've spoken about this week, let us know at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, lwis.com slash podcast, the comment section there, or via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Anton, have a good time in Sydney. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming in. Caitlin, hope everything goes well in Brighton next Thank week. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.